Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Earlier this month, the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals were playing a game with important playoff implications. The teams would later finish the season in second and third place in their conference. During that game, Bills safety DeMar Hamlin made a tackle, then collapsed from what turned out to be cardiac arrest. He was given CPR for nine minutes before being transported to the hospital. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thankfully, Hamlin is now showing signs of improvement. He's able to speak to his family and his teammates after being taken off of a ventilator. This hour, we're taking a closer look at the physical adversity that athletes face. Coming up, we'll hear from former NFL safety Ryan Stewart. Ryan was at a game in 1997 when his teammate Reggie Brown was given CPR on the field after suffering a devastating spinal injury. Ryan still deals with the physical impact of the game on his own body. And later we'll hear about this season in UConn women's basketball. It's been disrupted by injuries and illness. But first, Ben Strauss. He's sports and media reporter at the Washington Post, and he's written about DeMar Hamlin's injury. Ben, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. You know, we are early into the new year and have already experienced what may be one of the biggest sports stories of the year. And that is, of course, the injury of DeMar Hamlin suffering a cardiac arrest on the field in the middle of the game. One of the things that I think has taken a lot of people by surprise is that DeMar Hamlin wasn't a name that was well known before this game. And now people are trying to really understand who is this young man? Who is this athlete um, beyond just the, you know, sort of health, scare that he had on the field, but who is he beyond that? So share with our listeners, who is DeMar Hamlin in terms of background and his connection to the team? Yeah, he is a uh, a safety on the team. He he was not a highly heralded prospect coming out of college. He went to the University of Pittsburgh and he was from that area, but he was a sixth round draft pick, which uh, for anybody who doesn't know, this is not, you know, somebody that is expected even to stick on the team in some cases. And he uh, became a starter on the Bills um, earlier this season when incidentally another player got injured and and had become, uh, you know, a, a key contributor uh, despite um, the the unheralded um, background. And, and one of the incredible things about sort of the last few days is the more I think that people have learned about him. He's, you know, done toy drives in the past and, and was, it was a pretty active member in the community is that, um, you know, this is a pretty impressive guy. I like millions of other people was watching this game in real time as it happened and, you know, had to stop and rewind to say, what exactly just happened? What am I seeing here? Why is everyone on the field in this way? Walk us through how viewers experience this and what exactly happened on the field, because we are learning so much more now than we knew in that moment and really in the first hour. The play didn't look like anything out of the ordinary. It was a catch, a run, a tackle. Damar Hamlin got up and then wobbled for a moment and then collapsed. 
and then uh, you know, as often happens um, in NFL games, the the announcers announced that there was an injury and, and cut to commercial, and they came back, and there was still people milling around the field. It was a little bit confusing. They went to commercial again, and and after one of these breaks, they came back, and and then all of a sudden there was an ambulance on the field, and the shots of the players' faces, I think you know, for viewers certainly was really the indication that that this is not an injury that you see over the course of watching football, which, and you see, you see plenty of injuries watching football, but, you know, very clearly there were, there were players with, with these look, players were crying. Like you don't see that very often. There were players crying. There was this ambulance. And, you know, then obviously over the course of the next hour, there wasn't a ton of information, but you watched the, the these players surround him you couldn't see anything the the telecast was was pretty measured and you know telling you they didn't have any information um and about an hour after uh the the paramedics and the, the emergency medical personnel came onto the field they they canceled the game or, or suspended it then and, and later this week they they canceled it but it was um it, it was an absolutely surreal and you know terrifying um hour or so there one of the things that makes being a fan of sport unique in this era is social media because people are instantly responding. They are sharing their views, sharing their thoughts, and that's people across the spectrum. One of the things that I noticed on social media in sort of the 15 to 30 minutes after this incident happened were people immediately calling to say, don't make these players go back on the field, cancel the game, call the game. What are they waiting for? And we now know that it's much more complicated than a coach saying, no, we're not going to take the field again, or no, we don't want to play. And people have been very critical of the NFL for the time between when this happened and when the game was finally canceled. Walk us through what that decision-making process is. Why is it not as simple as the coach of Buffalo saying, no, my players are not going back out? I think it's not, I think you're right. It's not as simple as sort of, oh, we can't play this game. Let's move on, right? This is, I don't know if it sounds callous or if it sounds, um, you know, unfortunate to say, but the NFL is sort of this $10 billion business, right? And, you know, you get people carted off the field, you know, who are paralyzed sometimes, right? And and sort of there's this, you know, familiar um, thing that happens where, you know, a player gives a thumbs up as they get, carted off the field this has happened you know numerous times over the years and that's sort of this signal to to go ahead and and play and you know the sort of this implicit uh, approval to to get on with the game and because this was different there there was no thumbs up there was no sign that that this player may live it was really different but in order to cancel an NFL game the league sort of on the business side of things has to go through any number of things like what are we going to do and how are you know how does this impact the season and and i think in some ways that might seem callous but i also am not sure that the league five minutes after this happened like would be able to say oh we can't play you did hear um a member of the nfl players union yesterday in some of their first comments say that they you know would have liked the league to be quicker they felt the league was sort of asking around to players, like, do you want to play? Do you want to play? And and their view was sort of, you know, in a leadership position, you really should just go ahead and make that decision. You don't need to, you know, 
continually ask players or other shareholders and and their view was sort of they were looking for per- perhaps the answer that the players were willing to go play and um but ultimately they they did get to the right place and it didn't seem like anybody was in a position to to play this game do you think this will have any impact on the NFL's decision making going forward do you think that they may expedite that process or was this such a unique experience that in the moment they made the best decision that they could I don't know how um, how much this changes things or how much of an impact it has because of how unique a situation it was. Rather, right? we've been playing football for decades, and in the 1970s, there was a player who died on the field, and you do get really tragic incidents where you know players um, you know suffer spine injuries and things like that. But this, in particular, really had never happened before and so how you prepare for it or obviously they will talk about it you know and this will be added to like emergency planning and stuff but but they do have you know protocols in place they, they actually have an excellent sort of medical response to these things and you know there's an old joke or saying that the the two places you want to go into cardiac arrest are at an airport or a football field right because that's where the most medical personnel are ever immediately available to to serve you and so i I don't know how much changes after this because I, I do think that you saw the medical response was was really excellent and maybe if this were to happen again next week I mean God forbid you would you would see them cancel things a little faster but I think it's just such a unique event that I don't know how much how much changes because of it or, or how much you can sort of say if this happens again we'll do this. Um, you know, just because in, you know, 85 years of football, this has happened one time. You know, we've heard a lot from fans of these particular teams of football more broadly. We've heard from the league, maybe in a more limited perspective. But I'm curious about you, Ben, because you are someone who covers sports for a living. And one of the big critiques of coverage of DeMar Hamlin's injury was how reporters responded right? The sort of that human element of it. There've been a lot of critiques of tweets from people like Skip Bayless. Did this really move from centering on Damar Hamlin as a human being to the sort of business side and the implications for others? As a sports reporter, how do you balance that? That in this moment, this is about a human being who is suffering, but I also have to uphold the integrity of my profession to tell the story in its fullness. How do you balance that? I think the uh, Skip Bayless tweet where he sort of inelegantly suggested that that they might have to play or or scheduling would be difficult was really in the minority. I think on ESPN in particular, you saw a number of commentators from Booker McFarland to, um, you know, Troy Aikman very, very quickly say, I, I don't imagine how this game can be played. I don't imagine how these players are going to come back out here and and want to play much less be able to play and so i actually i i think that the 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 coverage like really did center on a lot of the humanity of the moment and the players and and in damar hamlin in particular and i think that is actually different i think 10 years 20 years ago you probably would have seen more what is the business implication of this maybe perhaps even these players should play so i i actually think that sort of coverage has changed and and sort of the way we think about players has definitely changed to some degree. And I do think 
the Skip Bayless tweet notwithstanding, that 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 was reflected in a lot of the way it was covered on Monday night and in the, the following days, too. We are recording this conversation on Friday, January 6th. And I think that's important context because as of this recording, the team has released a statement saying that Hamlin is showing improvement, that his doctors are optimistic and hopeful. Beyond Damar Hamlin and this particular event, this particular cardiac arrest, it is also raising broader questions about the safety of players. We heard this in the past around CTE, around concussions and other head-related injuries. Do you think that what happened to Damar Hamlin will renew the conversation about the safety and the risk within the NFL, professional sports, sports more broadly? Or do you think that this will still be seen as an isolated occurrence? I do not think that this is going to change the trajectory of the sport of football much at all. Um, I think for a long time now, um, there's a lot of information uh, about the safety of football, about CTE and head injuries. And I think that there is a, a broad understanding of how dangerous this game is. And I think even a few years ago, President uh, Obama you know, said at this point, I think that people who play football sort of understand the risks associated with it. So in terms of, of sort of where football is headed, I am a little bit skeptical that this is an existential moment for football and that people are going to, you know, suddenly be turned off by the game. If, if that was going to happen, I think it would have already happened with the head injuries um, and, and the way the league handled CTE for, for many years in, in, a, in a truly, you know, you know, pretty unfortunate way. What I do think um, is important and, and should um, get more coverage is the way the the relationship between the league and the players and the way that contracts are not guaranteed and the way that DeMar Hamlin, you know, because he's played only for two years, does not have a pension. I think that is actually sort of a more, I don't want to say important, but I, I think that, that that would be, a, that's a good place to focus efforts or sort of like, what should this change or what, you know, what do we want to take away from this as fans or what do we want to take away sort of, you know, societally as we think about football being this really popular thing. And I think um, creating a more equitable system that that rewards players for, for doing this, and that's, you know, guaranteed contracts and, and better medical care after they play. Um, there's a number of lawsuits going on, you know, about disability funds. And as part of the, the head injury settlement, you know, players are having trouble getting money from the league, getting money out of, you know, this big pot of money that the league set aside. And I think those are really important questions as I just don't think that the popularity of football is, is going anywhere today. So the NFL has announced that it will not replay this particular game, but the season continues and other teams will be playing this weekend and next week. What are you looking forward to with the rest of the NFL season? And what do you think that we as fans should be watching for? I think I guess I don't know if it's looking forward to. I think it'll be really interesting to see how the players, particularly on the Bills and the the Bengals, respond. You know, you hear about sports moments where things like this bring teams together and, you know, maybe they find a level of competition or level of, of you know, play and togetherness that they didn't have before. Or maybe it's just too hard to play football, you know, for the Buffalo Bills, right? It could sort of go either way, perhaps, and, you know, you wouldn't be that surprised. And also, obviously, just following the progress of DeMar Hamlin. I think that is the most important thing 
you know, independent from whatever happens in, in the season. The news seems to be positive. Um, I think that the reports, the doctors have said there's, there's certainly a chance that he makes a full neurological recovery. The news is promising and, and hopefully continues to be so. Ben Strauss is sports and media reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure. Thanks. In the very first play of the Bills' next game, running back Naeem Hines returned the kickoff for a 96-yard touchdown. Hines later scored on a 101-yard kickoff return, becoming the first player with two kickoffs returned for touchdowns in a single game since 2010. When we return, former NFL safety Ryan Stewart about what it's like to watch a teammate suffer a life-threatening injury. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashanker, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashanker has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready, so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In 1997, Detroit Lions linebacker Reggie Brown suffered a spinal cord injury during a game. Like DeMar Hamlin, Brown was given CPR and transported off the field by ambulance. Brown would make an impressive physical recovery, but he would never play in the NFL again. New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick was on the coaching staff of the opposing New York Jets at the time. He said that DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest reminded him of that game where Brown was injured. It was a very chilling game, one that I'll obviously never forget. And it just, I mean, I've been in a lot of games, but there's some that just, there's a moment that sticks out, and that would be one of them. Also at that game was Ryan Stewart. Ryan is former safety for the Detroit Lions and sports analysts. He and Reggie Brown were both drafted by the Lions in 1996. Ryan, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So we've been talking about DeMar Hamlin and, you know, this player who suffered cardiac arrest during a game on the field. And one of the things that we've been hearing from everyone, whether it's commentators or fans or other athletes, is that this seemed unheard of and so unexpected. You are someone who played in the NFL for a number of years and has been tied to the sport for most of your life. What was your reaction when you saw the play? I was literally watching the game in my living room and after the tackle was made, when he stood up, you know, I, I wasn't thinking anything. And then when he fell, 
I knew exactly what it was the minute he fell. I said about five or six seconds after he hit the ground, that brother just had a heart attack. And I turned the station. I know that CTE is on everyone's mind and the, the head trauma um, and the brain injuries that everyone's dealing with this playing ball. But I knew if he stood up, it wasn't CTE. So I knew what it was. Um, and because I'm quite squeamish when it comes to seeing these things these days because of my past in the game, like I said, I turned the channel and said a prayer for him. It looks like the, the people that have been praying, such as myself, um, might have a small victory because he's doing better. So I'm very thankful for that. One of the things that I heard, you could tell a difference between the analysts who had played the sport at this level and those who hadn't in terms of making it very clear this isn't just a moment in sport. This is about a human being who's facing a tremendous health risk and that it seemed to resonate with players and former players. I was struck by seeing these athletes on the field in tears and just really overcome with emotion. And as you said, I think it connects to their own experience, but also that human factor of this isn't just our teammate. This isn't just our opponent. This is a man who is literally fighting for his life. And while that seems so unheard of, Ryan, for you and your own experience, you had been through something like this before with your former uh, teammate and roommate, Reggie Brown. What was it about this experience of seeing DeMar Hamlin fighting for his life that resonated for you and perhaps connected for you? Uh, It took me back to 1997, Kalila. Um, One of the most traumatic experiences I've ever had while on the football field was in 1997 when Reggie had that, uh, that serious injury. So um, all I, all, all I, all I kept thinking about was, how Reggie was on that field and we didn't know the severity of it while it was happening on the field. Of course, we found out afterwards, but I don't think people understand the love that there is in a locker room. Um, at the end of the day, it is truly a brotherhood in that locker room. Um, it's a family. As a matter of fact, during the fall, this time of year, when football is being played, players spend more time with their football family than they do with their real family. So when you see someone injured like that and there's an opportunity that they'll never be the same again the rest of their life, when you see that, there's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of feelings, and you know exactly um, what that person is going through. So thank God for prayer. Uh, thank God for healing because he's, he's doing a little bit better now. But it is a life-changing situation when these things happen, and it's not just for the person that's injured on the field. They're dealing with it the most, but it's also for his brothers that's watching him in pain while he's laying on the ground as well. Ryan, I've heard you mention before that being a part of that kind of brotherhood is something that can't be explained, that people will say to you, look, it's a dangerous sport. Why would you engage in that? But having people who have been through that experience that you don't have to explain it because they just know in some ways fosters that kind of bond. But I'm also thinking here, Ryan, about how a player who may contribute to the injury of another player how do they move through that? How do they recover from, yes, this is the risk that we all assume, but I may have played a part in a lifelong injury. Given your experience, given you know what you've seen in your years of football, how do players recover from that kind of experience? This is going to sound somewhat callous or um, somewhat heartless, but um, we're trained from a very young age. I started playing football at seven or eight years old. 
Um, we're trained at a very young age that there are going to be injuries. <laughs> there's, there's not a, a, a question of if, it's more so when. And, um, you know, while playing ball, my prayers daily was that it wouldn't be me that had to deal with some serious injuries such as that. Um, the player that was involved with him, um, because uh, uh, T. Higgins was the wide receiver on the offense um, that he tackled to when he got injured. Uh, I heard him speaking last night, and he too was very anxious and concerned about you know his his peer. And um, last night when I heard the interview with him, he was mentioning how uh, Hamlin's parents reached out to him. Uh, his family contacted him to let him know that he was okay, to let him know that he wasn't at fault, um, to let him know that it's just part of the game. And uh, people say that all the time. Athletes say that all the time. It's just part of the game. But in actuality, you know, it really is. Uh, I, I'm, I'm somewhat of a daredevil, Kalila. I like riding motorcycles. I don't ride as much as I used to because uh, I've got a lot of kids and the, the thought of them riding a motorcycle terrifies me, so I don't ride because of them. But when I was riding a lot, my buddies that I rode with would always say the same thing. There's two types of riders. Okay, one that will fall and get hurt, <laughs> and 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 one that thinks about the time when he's going to fall and get hurt. So in in this game of football, we're conditioned to understand that injuries are going to happen. No nowhere near as severe as that one on, on Monday night, but um, it's just part of the course. And football players know that there are going to be injuries throughout the course of games and practices while they're on the football field. You have been very candid and clear about the business of professional football and understanding that at the end of the day, this is a money-making enterprise for a lot of folks who get paid very well, but also understanding how that creates different challenges. And you've also been an advocate for players, for their overall health and well-being. And what's come through this latest event, Ryan, is an understanding that DeMar Hamlin, while yes, he's playing for a professional football team, he's not vested, he's not entitled to a pension, and may be facing a lifelong recovery from this injury, both physically and mentally, as you mentioned before, your teammate, Reggie Brown, sort of that, you know, how do I be someone who I thought I was going to be, but now need to face a different path? What do we owe players like DeMar Hamlin, who assume this tremendous risk, but may not be entitled to the kinds of support and pension? Do you think this will change how we approach player support and sort of security for players beyond the game? I don't think it will change, Kalila. Um, athletes choose this life that they're living. Um, they're, they're blessed to have the fortunes that come with it. Um, they're burdened and blessed to deal with the fame that comes along with it. But somehow, Kalila, back dealing with all of my injuries, especially after Georgia Tech while in Detroit with the Lions, I started compartmentalizing injuries and just knowing that this is what I signed up for, okay? So your question was, what does the fan owe the player? You don't owe me a damn thing. <laughs> you don't owe me nothing. Um, my life, my choices, my decisions, um, I have to, 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 to deal with the, the, the cards that are dealt. And if you're an athlete, a professional athlete, especially a football player, one of the cards or some of the cards you're going to deal with are injuries. What we would ask 
of the fan or people that don't play the game, that watches the game and loves the game and respects the game is for your continued prayers for him right now while he's dealing with the injury and for your continued prayers for guys that are on the field playing this game that we all love to watch. But I don't think we're owed anything. I think we know what we signed up for. Uh, And to answer another part of your question, he was not vested. Uh, And that's something that really concerns me. However, Reggie Brown, when he got injured in 1997, he wasn't invested either. That was our second year. Okay. Um, I don't know his business, but I do know that he has been taken care of by the NFL, uh, even though he was not a vested player with the minimum amount of games, which is four years and uh, three games to be a vested tenured player. So I think when injuries along, these lines happen to guys, to my understanding, uh, there's a Pete Rozelle fund. Uh, there are several different funds that are in place for guys that deal with life-ending career injuries. Uh, there's monies that will be in place for him to be taken care of, to my understanding. And I hope that's the case because from what I've learned, I'm not sure how he'll rebound with his heart because Reggie's situation was a spine injury. Um, but hopefully he'll be all right. Um, I'm not sure if he'll ever be able to go back to the game again. But um, prayerfully, things are in place for he and his family to continue to, um, to strive and, and, and live a good life that, that God's blessing to be able to have. Ryan, you mentioned that you've played football since you were seven. You also mentioned that you are an adrenaline junkie. You love the thrill. You love the excitement. But you're also a father. And so I wonder, knowing what you know now about the sport of football, about sort of that domain and that realm, the risk and also the benefits, does it have an effect on how you parent so that if your kids come to you and say, dad, I want to play football, how do you respond? (laughs) No, (laughs) no. Uh, (laughs) Um, I've said no until last year, Kalila. My oldest son uh, doesn't like the game. Um, As a matter of fact, whenever people ask him if he wants to play, his response is usually the same. No, why would I want to deal with future head injuries? Uh, I don't want to walk around the house like my dad does now. That's what he says. Every single time someone asks him. My younger son, Mason, he's been asking to play since he's been five or six years old. And I said, no, 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 no. Until last year. Um, Last year, when he asked, I said, hey, bud, I told you what it's done to me. Um, I told you how I feel about it. I still love the game. I still watch the game. But I do not want you guys feeling like I feel every day now. But you've been asking for years, and if this is something you really want to do, I'm going to let you, you know. Let's pray on it together. Let's talk to God and see his plans. Um, And if this is what you think you want to do, we'll do it, son. So last year he played in Kalala. It was, uh, I think they had eight or nine games. It was the eight or nine longest days of my life while he was on that football field. I think we will revisit, if he wants to go back out there this year, I think we will revisit the situation and the conversation. I will show him the play from Monday night. I will explain what's taking place in that young man's life. I will talk to him about my former teammate, Reggie Brown. But I do not want him to play the game that I love and the game that still takes care of my family. I, I don't want that for him. I deal with daily situations now from the game that makes me say that. And parents, as you know, Kalala, we want better for our kids, (laughs) you know? So um, people ask if I would do it again if I had had the option uh, to go back at a younger age and play the game again. 
sometimes I say yes, and sometimes I say no. But I think that God blessed me with the mental capacity to be able to provide outside of the game. And um, uh, as much as I love it, um, that's not something that I want for my kids, even though I have a kid that played last year. So I hate to sound hypocritical, but, you know, it is what it is. And I, I, I told you the truth in the situation to this point. It's a fluid situation, so we'll see how it, what happens when the season comes around again next school year for Mason. But um, it's not something that I want for my kids because I want better for them than I've, than I've got for myself. I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it's real. And I think, you know, one of the challenges of being a parent is wanting your child to explore for themselves, to define their path for themselves, but still understanding, look, I know the risk. I've been there. And maybe you have to try this out for yourself to know that I really know what I'm talking about. Ryan, you mentioned a few times in talking about, you know, why you didn't encourage your sons to play football you've mentioned a couple of times the sort of daily struggles that you deal with in the aftermath of playing at the collegiate level and the professional level. What are some of those challenges that linger? Because you've been away from the game for a while, but it sounds like the game hasn't left you in terms of its impact on you and your body. No doubt about it. It didn't dawn on me until Monday night after the injury that 25 years ago on December 22nd, Reggie had that injury. and. Um, I didn't think about that until, you know, later on this week of how it's been 25 years. I've got nerve damage in my neck. I've got nerve damage in my shoulder, L3, L4, and L5 of my lower back. My spine are, are jammed together. I spend no less than an hour a day on the floor stretching. I go to rehab weekly uh, when things are bad, when things get worse than bad. Sometimes I go bi-weekly uh, when I'm feeling good, like I felt the last month or so, uh, I go um, every other week, but rehab is part of my life. Remembering to get on the floor and stretch because if I go two days without stretching, if I lift my left leg and my head is down at the same time, my back is going to give out. I'm probably going to fall to the ground. Uh, my arms, my hands, I have fingers that go numb for some time. Um, sometimes it's 10 minutes. Sometimes it's three minutes. Sometimes it's a day and a half. You know, um, the body is not made to be traumatized. The brain is not made to be bouncing back and forth from your uh, around in your skull. Um, and when you play the sport that that I love so much, uh, those things happen. And quite frankly, God didn't make us to do that, but He blessed me to be able to do it. So heavy is the head that wears the crown, and I know uh, athletes are um, looked at to be mentors and. Um, they're heralded to be these um, just incredibly fortunate guys that's blessed to make all this money playing the game. I'll say this also, Kalala, uh, as great as the money is that the players make, there's three to seven players on every NFL team that are probably set for life. Three to seven. Okay? Everyone else, Kalala, is a role player. Now, a role player probably makes, I'm, I'm not sure of the numbers, so back when I was a, a rookie, I, I think the base salary was So, of course, it's going to be more than that now. But um, it's a good number for a role player to make. But you've got to ask yourself if it's worth it when you have to deal with this stuff for the rest of your life. I know guys that say there's no way in the world they would do it again. I know guys that say I'll do it 10 times over if I had the chance. Um, Me, um, I don't think I would. You know, at least today I'm saying that while talking to you. 
but uh, it's a it's a heavy burden to bear when you're not sure if you know the sun when you're driving the car is going to spark a headache for you for the next couple of hours or for the next couple of days. You have navigated a lot of trauma. You've navigated a lot of adversity. And what stands out to me, Ryan, is that you are so committed to young people and to leadership and to community and helping young people find their way and helping them to learn from your own experience as they chart theirs. As we come to the close of our conversation together, What's the message that you would give to young people who may have watched this game and said, that's horrible, but I still want to play? Or maybe thinking about what's the value of my life when things can end in a moment? What's your message to young people? My message would be that, you know, life is absolutely amazing. And God has blessed all of us to a, be here, and B, be able to provide for ourselves and live the life that we choose to live. You get to choose to do certain things in life. So I would tell them not to be deterred by the situation that took place on Monday night. Um, I would tell them that if they love the game, to continue to play the game. But I would also tell them to do all that they can to take care of themselves, do all they, that they can to keep their head out of play so their brain isn't scrambling around in their skull. I would tell them to respect the game and, and learn the game and know the game and know how to play the game properly. But um, there's a few careers that come with a lot of drama, okay? Um, and it's not just athletes and football players because of the, the collisions, but there's firefighters, there's policemen. I, I had an uncle that worked down at the Charleston Port where, you know, from time to time, he'd lose coworkers on the job. and when that happened, they would stop work. But guess what? The next day, everybody's right back on the job. <laughs> so it, it, it's crazy how life is. Um, but um, to, to the people that love the game and the kids that love the game, keep on playing it, keep loving it, but be very careful and know what you're getting into. Um, also make sure that you're on the same page with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he's the one that can make everything possible if you have to deal with some things you don't want to have to deal with from your career. So. Again, the last thing I want to do is come up in this interview bashing the game. The last thing I want to do is um, make people terrified to play the game. But it's real out there. It's dangerous out there. And um, that being the case, you need to know so moving forward if that's something that you want to do with your life. Ryan Stewart is sports analyst and former safety for the Detroit Lions. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you, Kalala. I appreciate it. Coming up the latest on the Yukon women's basketball season. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The UConn women's basketball team had to postpone their January 8th game. Multiple injuries of players left them with only six active players, not enough to meet the seven-player minimum. These injuries come during a season when head coach Gino Oriema has missed four games due to illness. Here to talk about the UConn women's team is Maggie Vanoni. Maggie is a journalist and sports writer and currently works as a beat reporter for Hearst Media with a focus on UConn women's basketball. Maggie, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
No, UConn women's basketball is an institution, not just here in the state of Connecticut, but really nationally. They have had this amazing record, 11 national championship, an impressive roster of players who go on to the WNBA, go on to the USA Olympics team, all of these amazing accomplishments. And the big question that people might ask is why? What is it about UConn women's basketball that has led to this impressive record? I mean, there's there's so much. Where do you start with the coaches? Do you start with the players? They have such good people that have gone through that program. It's good people just personality-wise and how they mesh together and what they stand for, their missions. Um, I mean, if you if you really want to go back, I mean, Gino got there in 85 and he's been the one constant, right? Him and Chris Daly have been the one constant through it all. So you could say it's, it's the, them, those two people together coaching the program and shaping it and molding it and molding the kids that have come through them. But they also pick really good players to join their program. So it's not just them as well. The other thing that I think is unique about UConn women's basketball is, you know, it's one of the rare programs where we hear more about the women's team than we do the men's team. How difficult is it to build an impressive women's program, particularly at a state school, given the kinds of gender-based inequities that we see in college sports? I mean, you look at what they've done and you don't see it anywhere else. You don't see any other women's program to that level. The players that have gone through their program are all Americans to the definition, right? They've gone on to have legendary careers in the W, overseas, Olympics. They were successful as ESPN started picking up the sport. They were successful as more and more attention became on social media with women's basketball. You're seeing athletes like Paige Beckers, who has an internet following of not just current players, but like young players who look up to her, who can see her on TikTok, who can see her on Instagram, Twitter, whatever you're on. Social media wasn't around in the 1995 when they were first starting to get really big, but ESPN was. And that's when ESPN started showing their games and started showing, look at this thing that we have that no one else is doing quite to their level, you know, and it just blew up from there. One of the things that I think some people finally started to realize last year after the detainment and eventual release of Brittany Griner was really about the challenge that women athletes face in the world of basketball, that you don't have people leaving programs early to go play professionally. There's a loyalty to the program, a loyalty to their development, and in some ways more limited opportunities. The challenge then for a team like UConn is that it creates very high expectations. When you have such a successful track record, when you have coaches and players who have national, and in the case of Paige Becker's international presence and attention, then everyone expects you to win. But you've written about the fact that this season in particular, UConn women's basketball has faced a very difficult path and overcome or working through a lot of adversity. What's happening there this season for the team? Yeah, I mean, it's not just this season. It was last season, too. Um, you can start all the way from August 2021. There's just been so much just random things. A lot of these injuries are freak injuries, as we would say. You know, obviously, basketball is a contact sport. You're going to get hurt. and It's not any one particular fault. Um, I personally can't find our program that has dealt with this much in such a short period of time especially to so many players. It's not just Paige. She's out for the year with the ACL injury. AZ Fudd is out. She's been out for eight games with a knee injury. Um, Coach Gino isn't feeling well either. So you're just, you're seeing so much just last minute ever since this team. And there was a really good quote from Nika Mule a couple of weeks ago where Chris Daly said that, Nika said that there's not surprise anymore. 
when we think about the importance of leadership, of modeling how you move through adversity, we of course have to look to Coach Gino Oriyama. You tweeted out a quote from him a few days ago, and it says, to paraphrase, it's been an extremely difficult month for me. I thought I was ready to return, but I need a little more time. I'm going to take a step back to focus on my health and will return when I feel ready. In the world of women's sports, where women's athletes, particularly women basketball players, have been so vocal about the importance of physical health, mental health, and holistic wellness. What does it mean for a dominant coach like Gino to say, look, I'm not ready to return and I need to do what's best for me and my health. What does that mean for women's programs, for athletes to be able to say, maybe we shouldn't rush back to the game. We should focus on making sure that we're ready to come back. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, health is the number one priority in any sport, any athlete, and it should be. And the fact that you're seeing Gino say this on a big, such a big platform shows that, you know, he's not putting that pressure to come back on himself, nor on his athletes. You know, he knows that they can go on without him. Chris Daly is taking over the team. She's doing just fine with them. One of my favorite quotes is that you can't pour from an empty kettle, right? And he knows that he's not a full kettle right now. Not that he's a kettle, but he knows he's not himself and he doesn't want to bring whatever he's dealing with onto the team, whether it's how he coaches, whether it's how he interacts with people, he wants to step aside and prepare himself and just feel better that he can come back full. And I think that speaks volumes to just how much he cares about this program, how much he cares about the individuals within the program, the players, the coaches, just the team staff, that he wants to be at his fullest for this team. How do you think women's athletes manage and navigate that kind of pressure? Because not only are you expected to perform for your program, Now you're generating revenue for yourself and for others, and you're still 18, 19, 20 years old. We've seen this with men's athletes who, you know, would leave high school or leave college early and go into the league and all of the questions. This is fairly new for women, particularly women's basketball players. What do you think that pressure means for them? It shows just how resilient these kids are, how resilient they are, how just like poised they can be. Um, And you don't see that a lot, especially with kids so young dealing with you know, like you said, having to make revenue on their own, having to go out on the court and score X amount of points for their team, having to deal with every other player getting injured but you. Um, I don't know how, how they deal with that. Um, I, I imagine it's really challenging and that it's setting them up to be poised and professional in the, in the professional space too, if that's where they want to go. Let's talk about that professional space and go back to what was arguably one of the biggest sports stories of 2022. And that was Brittany Griner. And again, it wasn't just about Brittany Griner. It was also about the broader system that she was playing in. And the fact that these pay inequities, these sort of compensation packages for women playing basketball professionally is nowhere near what their male counterparts have to deal with. And it meant that people said, well, look, men's basketball generates more revenue, so it makes sense. But the Brittany Griner situation made it clear that if this marquee player can face this kind of uncertainty and threat to her safety, then perhaps other women's athletes need to think about whether it's worth it to play overseas. And you've written in the past about the WNBA, you've written about players playing overseas, many athletes, and people don't realize this, many of those athletes do both. They have to play in the WNBA and play overseas to make sort of a, a fraction of what their male counterparts do. How do you think Brittany Griner's situation and her experience will affect that decision going forward? 
I think a lot of women's athletes who go overseas might reevaluate why they want to go over there and the resources that they have when they're over there. You know, talking to some W players, they love doing that. They love experiencing the new culture. They love meeting new people. They love going out there. Granted, they're making a lot more money over there than they will during the WNBA season here in the States. On the flip side, you have athletes that hate going over there. They hate being the only English speaker on their team. They hate not knowing anybody. They hate being so far away from their family. It's really player by player decision, you know, and how they feel being so far away. Personally, I think a lot of players might kind of start trending outward of that. And also the W now is inserting new rules where if you're late to training camp because of your overseas commitment, they can find you. Um, I think by 2024 or 2025, if you miss the first day, the first game of the regular season, you can be forced to sit out the whole season. That'd be a huge pay cut, right? And that would be a huge just to not play a season because you miss one game because of your overseas commitment. It's it's a really big risk factor. As a fan of the sport and someone who writes about it, I'm curious, what are you looking forward to for this season for UConn women's basketball and perhaps women's basketball more broadly? I'm really excited to see how UConn kind of, like they did last year, right? Last year, they made it to national championship absurdly. No one, like they went through so much last year and they still made it to the national championship game. Granted, that was their first loss ever in the title game. So I'm really curious to see how this year, how far they go in the postseason and how they come back from all these setbacks. Um, that to me will be really curious and really interesting, um, especially now that we're having just two regional sites instead of multiple that also, I'm really curious to see how the NCAA conducts that. That's a lot of people, a lot of teams in one particular site. Um, so I'm very excited to see how that uh, plays. Um, in terms of the W, as someone who covers the Connecticut Sun here in Connecticut, they have a whole new coach, a whole new program. So I'm really excited to see how Stephanie White just recreates that program and how what it looks like, which players stay, which players go in terms of free agency this this month. Um, so that to me is also really exciting. It's a lot to look forward to and we're excited as the season plays out. Maggie Vanoni is a journalist. She writes for Hearst Media covering UConn women's basketball. Maggie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, remember to leave a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.